it's good to have a great trust and know that God's got it all. It just—it does blow us away sometimes and we think, well, in our own way, how are we going to do all this? How are we going to make this happen? How, how, how? And you just give it over and trust and, and, it, and it does. It's been great the last couple of weeks. Andrew's been talking about hearing the, the word of God. How do we hear the voice of God? How do we... How do we in what ways do we hear it? And I liked what he referred to with Abraham last week um, with the, the he's, he had the, the command to go to a mountain far away to sacrifice Isaac but there was another message, there was another word and if he hadn't have been listening, if he hadn't have been hearing he would have missed out, he wouldn't have heard and he would have sacrificed Isaac. So there's, there's a continual word that's you know, there's, it's always going. Are we, how are we going? Are we listening to the word of God? Are we, are we sort of getting anything from that and hearing it? They, I, I liken it for me, or for us, we, we sometimes go for a walk down the, the Yarrawee Creek, down the back of our place, and I, I think you go along there and you see the birds, the finches and the, and the wrens in amongst the bracken and the blackberries and whatever, and you can go through there at a pace and not see anything and not hear anything. But if you, if you take your time and you still your mind and you still your voice, you hear them. They're very small voices. And you stop and you sit and they come out. And they run around or hop, whatever they do, around you. And you think, I, I, that for me is like how to hear the voice of God. You still your mind, you close your eyes, you close out the, the world and... You listen and you hear, and it's there. Now, that's not what I come to talk about. I come to talk about Mother's Day. We need to honour our mothers today. And uh, a great day for mothers. What I put on the, into the front of the logos, so I've been reading this, which a couple have read, and, and certainly Roses relates to quite well. But... There's, a, there's a, a couple of words in there and I'll, I'll, uh, I'll go into what, a bit of the story in a minute but can I call you mummy? Mummy, she said it and I knew she was mine. I was captivated because mummy is forever. Mummy is such a powerful m- name. Mummy means I trust you. Mummy means you will protect me. Mummy is the word for shouting when you need someone dependable and for laughing with when you're excited. Mummy is for crying on and cuddling with when you are sad or giggling and hiding behind when you're embarrassed. Mummy is the fixer of boo-boos and the mender of broken hearts. Mummy is a comfort place, a safe place. Mummy means you are mine, I am yours and we are family. Those are the words of Katie Davis who at 18 years old finished school in Nashville and had a draw to go to Uganda about 10 years ago. And she ended up, by the end of this book, coming, um, bec- by becoming a mother to orphaned children. She wasn't allowed to adopt them, but I believe she's gone on further than that and now is in the process of adoption. But she was certainly foster mother to 14 displaced girls. Now, if you want to have a bit of an insight into what Jess might be doing, that's, it's described in here. If you want to have an insight into how someone hears the voice of God and responds, 
It's described in her life. Her, her life, they say, they say to her, and, and she probably repeats it every chapter, I think, that people say, you are so good, you're so brave, you're so courageous. She says, I'm not. I don't know what I'm doing. It's God through me. It's Jesus who, who works through me. I'm just here and I'm just available and I'll just do it. And I think we lose a bit of that in our Western culture. She certainly devotes a bit of time to one chapter where she went back to, to her, uh, her home, which she didn't call home, in, in uh, Tennessee, and was saddened to see that life had everything and, but had lost a dependence on God, that they had 24-hour supermarkets, they had 24-hour health care, they had 24-hour everything, but they had no dependence on God. Whereas back in Uganda, they had 24-hour nothing and a total dependence on God. It reminded me of our, our trip to India. And I thank James for that, for opening my eyes. And, and what we saw there, and I, I think the poverty that we saw is nothing like the poverty that she's seen. So today's a day we set aside to honour mothers to say thank you for the times we took them for granted, the times that we didn't say thank you for all they do that we don't see. For some of it's an easy thing to do, for others maybe not so. I'm sure most of us can remember occasions when we weren't really happy with our mothers. I know I, I certainly can. We don't all have the picture postcard perfect family. But raising another human being, it can be the toughest job in the world, but it is a very important job. There are some of our parents who, mums and dads, who, who for whatever reason can't cope with the pressures of parenting and, and they leave. My heart goes out to those who are left behind and the devastating effect it has on losing a parent. So I remember the effect that the choices make I remember the effect that it has, and I've seen it through the Kids Hope program. The kids there, they're our single parent families predominantly, and the hurt and the pain that's in their lives. And my, my prayer is that God will provide someone that they can call mum. But what does the Bible say about honouring mothers? I think it's the fifth commandment, Exodus 20.12. Honour your father and your mother so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. It's, it's the first commandment that carries a promise with it. I think it's the only commandment that carries a promise with it. It's repeated again by Jesus in Matthew 15, 19, and in Mark and Luke, that this is one of the important commandments. When the rich young ruler came to Jesus and said, What must I do? And he went through the commandments and honour your father and mother. And it was highlighted by Paul in Ephesians 6. We were reminded that this commandment comes again with the promise that when we honour our parents, it will go well for us. Whatever honouring means, maybe it means if we don't honour our parents, it won't go well for us. So today, today we honour mothers. Not that we shouldn't honour them every day, but it's a day set aside to say thank you. Thank you for all the times that I didn't say thank you. Thank you for the unseen things. Just thank you. And thank you for being you. 
the modern day tradition of Mother's Day started back in early 1900s when it's obviously started in America the lady Anna Jarvis held a memorial service to honour her mother her mother had been a peace activist who had cared for wounded soldiers from both sides I presume of the American Civil War it didn't say that but and she'd also set up mothers working groups to address public health issues it was picked up by there and as, as quite often happens by the commercial world and they could make money out of it so it, it became very highlighted. But it was carried over to Australia in 1924 when Lady Janet Hayden stumbled on institutionalised and forgotten women who were mothers and they had no one to honour them. And she went about changing that. The Mother's Day is about honour and recognition and not the commercialised aspect we see today. We don't need $500 diamond studded earrings or we just need to say thank you. In honouring mothers, we need to understand the hardships that they may have faced. As our mothers were children too. They experienced stuff that young girls experience they may have had hardships they may not have but they had stuff that shaped them into the women that they are and, and give to them the uh, the mental capacity to look after us or, or to raise us I thank God for my mother but there were certainly times that I wished our relationship was different especially when I was a teenager. I think we could probably all relate to that. We go through those times. But in her later years, I came to understand what it was that had shaped her. And I put aside myself and un to understand her and what had happened in her life to shape her and her attitude to me. I'll go through a little bit of a story about my mother. But my parents met in 1937 at a church youth camp. Married in 1942, and my dad was in the Air Force, so he'd not long joined up. So their wedding was squeezed in between training camps. Uh, he was off to the next training camp virtually two, three days after their wedding. He was posted in the Pacific Islands, and after a short time he was discharged, and he was medically unfit. And he spent many months in rehab in, in uh, Heidelberg Rehab Hospital in Melbourne. Now their first child was born in 1943, in April, to Margaret. As far as I understand, my dad was still in hospital in Melbourne. And Margaret passed away in September 1943, and my dad was still in rehab. So my mum was a single mum who lost a child. They had no home, and I know that I'm fairly sure she was living with my dad's dad, my grandfather and auntie. So I understand the mental anguish that she must have suffered and that, how that affected her attitude to us, the rest of her children. So Margaret wasn't spoken of when I was younger and I, I don't think I found out about her until I was in my 20s. She's not listed on my birth certificate. And to add to that, you know, my dad was discharged from hospital 
He wasn't expected to enjoy good health. He would be invalided. He wasn't expected to have a long life. But he did. Their personal life must have been okay. They had five kids over the next six years. And then I came along another six years later. So for me to understand my mum's background, the trauma she endured, I'm humbled. And I can't hold any resentment. I'm just sad that I didn't find out about it until you know, a few years before she passed away. The thing that repaired our relationship, she went above and beyond for us when we were in a time of crisis. They'd left down here and they'd moved back to their home area in Shepparton and uh, Anna was very ill and there was a time where I could have easily lost her and I could have been on my own but my mum came <clears throat> and we look back over that time and we say thank you that she was there and that, that was mended our relationship was as good as it could be after that. So today I want to consider us to consider the mums who are doing it on their own, not the picture postcard mums that we think you know, have got everything right. There's a world of mums out there who are in all sorts of pain. Without the support of a life partner, those mums, the mums who have lost their children, mums who have had miscarriages or they've lost babies or they've lost older children. It's a pain that they carry and, and I, I understand, it sort of come to me as, as going back through this, that I own, we only know our relationship from our mothers since we become conscious of what our relationship with our mothers is. Now, if I, my mum was nearly 42 when I was born, so there's 42 years of life plus a few, before I know anything about who she was. And you, you consider the age that your mum was when you were born, and there's a life, that lifetime before, that we don't understand, and probably never will. And there's another group of forgotten mothers, and this is a bit of a twist, but our parents, they raise us, that's a fact. They care for us and they nurture us, but when they get older, when they become aged and invalid, that's quite often one of us that takes care of them, and that job usually falls to the closest living daughter. These women become mothers to their mothers. So we honour this group of mothers and say thank you. But who does say thank you? Usually this... So let's remember and show gratitude to all mothers today. And just all mothers. I want to get back to something that was, make this a little bit biblical. I was looking for a hero mum in the Bible and I don't know, I was led to a passage in 2 Samuel 21. I'm sorry, Elise, I didn't put this to you to put up. But I know you hear Mother's Day sermons about all the famous mothers of the Bible and I thought well I don't want to talk about Mary I don't want to talk about the ones that everyone's talked about I, surely there's someone else there and I'm, I have to say that God led me to this, this lady it's the story of Rizpah 
R-I-Z-P-A-H, Rizpah. Who was Rizpah? She was a single mum. And she witnessed the execution of her sons. Rizpah was Saul's, King Saul's concubine. That's a word that's always puzzled me. And I went looking on that one and said, what's a concubine? And thought, you know, it's a, a second-rate wife or what? But to put it into today's language, it's a mistress. It's someone who's not good enough to be a wife in the time, but good enough to be treated as a wife. And in Saul, King Saul's time, it would have been that there w she would not have had correct social standing or come from the wrong side of the road or the wrong family, whatever. So she wasn't able to be taken as a wife, but she was certainly attractive enough to be taken into his inner chambers because she had, they had two children. The children from the relationships, the children from, from a, a, that sort of relationship would not carry any inheritance rights from the family. They were illegitimate children, so they did not share in the inheritance. She herself would not have any rights as a wife. I'll read the story. I'll go back. So it's... 2 Samuel 21. The, the, the predis pre of this, which I won't go back to, but it's, uh, it's about the avenging of the Gibeonites. And the Gibeonites were a, a tribe of people that deceived Joshua into taking in an inheritance themselves in the promised land. Though they submitted themselves to servitude of the Israelites, they saved their lives and all of the others around them were being slaughtered. So during the reign of David there was a famine for three successive years. So David sought the face of the Lord and the Lord said, It is on account of Saul and his blood-stained house. It is because he put the Gibeonites to death. And Saul went off on a rampage and decided that the, he would do what Joshua didn't do and, and annihilate the Gibeonites. The king summoned the Gibeonites and spoke to them. The Gibeonites were not a part of Israel, but were survivors of the Amorites. The Israelites had sworn to spare them, but Saul in his zeal for Israel and Judah had tried to annihilate them. David asked the Gibeonites, What shall I do for you? How shall I make amends so that you will bless the Lord's inheritance? The Gibeonites answered him, We have no right to demand silver or gold from Saul or his family, nor do we have the right to put anyone in Israel to death. What do you want me to do for you, David asked. And they answered the king, As for the man who destroyed us and plotted against us so that we, may have, we have been decimated and have no place anywhere in Israel, let seven of his male descendants be given to us to be killed and exposed before the Lord at Gibeah of Saul, the Lord's chosen one. And the king said, I will give them to you. He spared... Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, because of the oath before the Lord between David and Jonathan, son of Saul. But the king took Armoni and Mephibosheth, the two sons of Ai's daughter, Rizpah, whom he, she had borne to Saul, together with the five sons of Saul's daughter, Merab, who she had borne to 
Adriel, son of, that's irrelevant, he handed them over to the Gibeonites who killed them and exposed them on a hill before the Lord. All seven of them fell together. They were put to death during the first days of the harvest, just as the barley was beginning. The barley harvest was beginning. Rizpha, daughter of Ai, took sackcloth and spread it out for herself on a rock from the beginning of the harvest till the rain poured down from the heavens on the bodies. She did not let the birds of the air touch them by day or the wild animals by night. When David was told what Rizpha, Saul's concubine, had done, they went and took the bones of Saul and his son Jonathan from the citizens of Jabesh, And David brought the bones of Saul and his son Jonathan there, and the bones of those who had been killed and exposed were gathered up, and they were buried. These two sons, who had no legal standing in Saul's family hierarchy, were forced to pay for his crime against the Gibeonites. They had no inheritance, but they did inherit his crime. Another thing I noticed in this passage that it was Rizpah who sat guard over these slain people, these guys, two sons and the other three who were, I haven't worked that out, but they're probably nephews if there was a, a marriage thing in there. The other guys, her, their mother, Merab, not mentioned again in this story. So it's the, the illegitimate wife of the illegitimate sons who sat guard. And you look at how long she sat guard for. It's um, the barley harvest. If we look at it in our terms here, barley harvest starts in the second, third of summer, usually. So end of January, February for us. And the first rains happened this week. So that's May. So she sat there for three months and guarded these bodies from the birds and the wild animals. It wasn't just a couple of days. That's a commitment of a mother. You'd probably say because she'd laid out sackcloth, she was mourning. And obviously she would have been mourning and grieving. There's no indication of age or time. But I draw from this that we honour the single mother. We, I feel so often that we, we look at motherhood in the traditional family sense, the perfect picture postcard family. But this is, passage tells me that we need to honour mothers in every sense, mothers from every picture. Mothers who are on their own for whatever reason, their partners have deceased, their partners have gone astray, or their partners, have, as, as in one of our sons, is away at work for four weeks at a time. And he's not home today. He's in mid-shift, so our daughter-in-law is a single mother for a month. So we honour mums who, for whatever reason, who are doing it on their own. It'll, I might just finish up soon and go this to the last bit. 
So we see single mums with infants and small children, we wonder who cheers them on, who acknowledges all the hard work they do. Consider in a two-parent family that the goal of kids is to divide, to divide and conquer. But in a single-parent family, it's to wear you out so that you just say yes. You just give in. It's hard work being a parent. But on Mother's Day, this Mother's Day, who champions the single mums? Single mums have had to be the one who had to organise their selfie present. They prepare and cook food and think up activities that will communicate a touch of endearment for themselves. Kids can be very loving and endearing, but they don't always understand that on Mother's Day they are meant to be extra endearing. And if they are really little, they just don't get it. Sometimes when they're older, they just don't get it. I think single mums are amazing. They are courageous and demonstrate a steadfast love. This Mother's Day, I just want to say thank you. Thank you for loving your little ones and thank you for positioning your heart towards, heart towards steadfastness. Fearlessly celebrate motherhood. So raising another human being is the toughest job in the world, but it is the most important job in the world. So life isn't perfect, but you choose to be present. So we look to mothers, all mothers, and especially those who are single parenting, and we take our hats off and we say thank you to them on this day of motherhood awareness. And I say thank you to all mothers. Amen. <laughs> and if anyone wants to... Pray for anything, prayer for anything. I'm going to sit down here for a little while. And otherwise, go and love your mothers. Like a vow that is tested